welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? This is our first episode in a new series of episodes that we're calling 21st Century Clean Tech. For regular listeners, you'll remember that we introduced Connor Reed a couple of episodes ago in episode 27. In this new series, Connor is going to be bringing stories focused on clean technologies through conversations with business leaders, entrepreneurs, researchers, and anyone who is leading the energy and carbon transition. Welcome back, Connor. Thanks, Greg. I'm excited to finally launch this first episode and put it out into the world. So what's the focus of this first episode? In our first episode, we're going to be talking about Canadian clean tech disrupting the oil and gas incumbents. And more specifically, we're going to be talking about solar. I think it makes sense to start with solar for two reasons. First, solar panels are, I think, what most people think about when I say and when they hear the word clean tech. So I think it's a comfortable, it's a natural starting place for listeners. We can wait to get into some of the more gnarly bleeding edge tech like carbon capture, electrolyzers later in the season. That's first. Second, renewable power generation, solar and wind, they're really mature and established industries. They're headed by multinational corporate Goliaths, Brookfields, Siemens, Vestas. So it, it might've seemed like it happened overnight, but solar isn't the scrappy little charity case that I think that some people think it is. It's really the poster child of the clean tech world. Uh, if we ignore Tesla, that is. So I think it's a good place to start before getting into the more speculative industries later on. You can be absolutely certain that we are going to be dealing with climate change and we're going to have to find these 360 degree solutions that don't impoverish people, that, that are fair and equitable, that are resilient, that create economic growth. That's Mike Andrad. He's a CEO of Morgan Solar and a real veteran of the solar industry. Mike and I sat down for a conversation virtually, back in May. We talked about everything from his start at IBM to his views on hydrogen, carbon capture, and of course, what he's doing to promote Canadian clean tech. But first, Craig, uh, why don't I give you some background on Mike? Mike has more than 30 years experience working with dozens of the best known tech firms, launching hundreds of products, and he's had a ringside seat for global technology disruption events. Think everything from IBM in the early 90s, BlackBerry, and now distributed solar. He was part of the founding management team at Celestica, which is a multinational electronics manufacturing services company headquartered here in Toronto, Ontario. During his time there, Mike experienced firsthand the challenges of growing a global tech company in a highly competitive environment. Mike believes that climate change is the defining issue of our generation and that technology is part of the solution, but that it's also going to be a disruptive event for Canada. So in addition to his role as CEO of Morgan Solar, an investor in multiple early stage clean tech companies, He's an advocate in advisory roles with the government on manufacturing, innovation, and clean technology. That's a pretty impressive CV. 
And as you pointed out, he's definitely had a ringside seat for global technology disruption events. And to your point about the solar industry not being the scrappy little startup industry that some people think it is, the International Energy Agency has crunched the numbers on solar, I was reading just a couple weeks ago, and said that solar energy is now the cheapest electricity in history, cheaper than hydro and natural gas and way cheaper than coal. So we're talking about a very serious technology transition in the making here. Right. There's no doubt, I think, that solar definitely fits squarely in the category of quote-unquote clean tech. But I think personally, the term can be a bit ambiguous. Is nuclear clean tech? Is carbon accounting software clean tech? Water treatment, is that clean tech? I think a lot of the times the answer is, well, it depends. So I asked Mike how he would define the clean tech sector. Here's what he said. I'm a tech guy, so my background is tech. So I focus more on the tech side. And the clean, I think, is where everyone kind of gets into their debates, the semantics debates. So let's kind of break that into two pieces. The tech for me is something more where we are applying some new way to deal with a problem that exists. The clean aspect of it is that that technology should be full life cycle better than the alternatives that exist today. And so I'm not a perfectionist in that I'm saying, hey, you know, it's not a religious debate for me. It's like, is this a technological improvement? Like, is it doing something better? And is it cleaner than what we have? And so when I look at clean tech, there's the mitigation stuff that says, hey, we're going to take stuff that's dirty today and make it less dirty. And, and that's all great. But the stuff that I really focus on is the stuff that is just takes out that intermediate step and just says, it's just cleaner and better full life cycle right off the hop. And so that tends to me be mostly solar. And then I'd say battery storage, wind, you know, those sort of things. Of course, efficiency is the most important, like stop using the, the electricity. So that's where kind of get into electric vehicles where they, you know, are just multiples of more efficient than internal combustion and engines. So if the, the things that I focus on are the things that are just like, boom, they're just better full cycle right off the top. We're not trying to mitigate something. Uh, that's where I focus. But I mean, clean is broader. Like, is it cleaner? Uh, that, that's great too. We need a lot of ores in the water here. So Mike really focuses on clean electricity, power generation, and storage technologies, solar, wind, and battery storage. He calls these transformative solutions instead of just incremental solutions, technologies that don't come with caveats. It's the way that I think about it. Something that doesn't pass the buck to future leaders or future generations to finish the job. Connor, you mentioned that Mike had his start in computer electronics manufacturing. Uh, tell us more about that. Sure. And uh, it's a good point to bring up. I think it's key to understanding Mike's current role and his direction. So Mike started his career at IBM, and he rose through the ranks there pretty quickly, uh, even taking his MBA during night school while he was there. When things started to go south for IBM, though, in the early 90s, uh, Mike joined a group of senior IBM folks here in Toronto to launch Celestica. Celestica went public in the late 90s and now actually has a market cap over a billion dollars. Based in Toronto, Celestica is a former IBM unit that's emerged as one of the world's largest electronics manufacturing services companies. It offers design services, supply chain management, global distribution, and post-sales repair services. Celestica has a deep expertise in electronics manufacturing, 
They tapped this expertise to forecast and capitalize on industries that were transformed by digitalization. Industries like consumer appliances, telecom, healthcare, industries today that look completely different than what they did 20 years ago because of a proliferation of cheap electronic widgets, essentially. So this was the division that Celestica called diversified markets. It was a division that Mike established and he led it. They went out and scouted for the next space that was ripe to be overturned by digital solutions. Here's Mike talking about that time in his career and the lessons that he took away from it. And you'll see, Greg, actually how this experience set him up in the future perfectly to get into solar. So we just started seeing that this, as soon as you said, hey, we're going to base this product on standard hardware architectures and standard software architectures that you could then do global manufacturing. You could then outsource it. You could then take subcomponents and assemble them to standards. And, and that opened up a whole bunch of things. And, and so, yeah, my job when I first took over, it wasn't diversified markets at the time, but it was a hodgepodge group of like stuff that didn't fit the traditional mold of, you know, people who came to IBM or Celestica, you know, for manufacturing were computer guys and things like that. But it was always the next thing. So the first next thing was telecom. We said, okay, it's going to go from analog switching to packet switching, which was digital. And as soon as you digitize the information, then you could use the same sort of computer technology and supply chain. And then it went into aerospace. We said, wow, things are going fly by wire. And, you know, they have high reliability specifications that we're used to doing, but they're not really great with electronics. So let's get into aerospace. And then it got into industrial and it got into healthcare. And, you know, I was always the person who was either doing the M&A when we were acquiring businesses that did that, that we're going to transform or in charge of strategy and trying to figure out where the next one was, or oftentimes we would do the strategy and they'd say, okay, go ahead, find that company and go and do it. And so somewhere along the line, we got up to this quote, diversified group. And that's when I said, I think the next thing that's going to tip is going to be energy generation and distribution and fall into the same sort of model as all of those other industries that we've seen over the 20 years or so like that. So that was probably about 2009 is uh, where it first kind of twigged in that something was going to happen to the electrical system. And so it sounds like a lot of the lessons learned from Celestica were around the value in how standardized components can open up global cooperation, global manufacturing, and really drive down uh, unit prices on these, particularly electronic components. Yeah. The other big lesson was the mighty can fall and the things that seem yeah. to be, you know, uh, just set in stone about this is how you do business. It's not usually that someone comes along and is exactly like IBM and knocks over IBM. It's not someone comes along is like Nortel and knocks Nortel over. It's not someone comes along, you know, with a BlackBerry and knocks them off and on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Almost always it's some disruptive outside player who cleverly figures out that I can apply things from another industry to this. And usually that entry point was digitization, standardization, which allowed all those Moore's law forces, economies of scale, distributed supply chains, you know, all those things all of a sudden they're, I used to joke, they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. When they show up, when you have this standardization, commercialization, you know, globalization, electronification, outsourcing, those things show up and all of a sudden your industry changes. You know, I love Mike's reference to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In, in case you didn't catch it there, standardization, globalization, 
electronification and outsourcing. No, no, I caught it. You can't, you can't miss that one. That was a great metaphor. And, and Craig, you can probably see where this is going. Eventually, Celestica decides that power generation is the next sector that's going to fall prey to the quote-unquote four horsemen. So they start expanding their solar and storage business, making the bet that Celestica can provide scale that will drive down the cost of manufacturing renewables and ultimately grow the market as unit costs fall. And to their credit, they were right. They were just ahead of their time, the classic challenge of timing. Yeah, exactly. Celestica may have been a bit too prescient. So this was around 2010, 2011, right around the peak of what a lot of people call the first wave of clean tech investing. Of course, the early clean tech wave eventually went bust. In the case of renewable power generation, it was still a few years too early for widespread market adoption. And there was heavy competition from offshores manufacturers. But, uh, you know, all the same, this is where Mike entered into the clean tech renewable power realm. And he was quick to see how standardized components and global supply chains would start a feedback loop that would keep dropping solar's prices. When he eventually moved on from the number two position at Celestica, he told me that he knew solar would be where he wanted to plant his flag next, where he wanted to make his difference. Solar is going to be a critical energy source, a critical tool in the climate change, maybe one of the most critical tools in the climate change fight. It's something I know about. I've been at it for 10 years. Let's make our stand here, guys, and let's try and do something here in Canada with it. Mike took over as CEO of Morgan Solar in 2016 with a mandate to scale the company from a regional enterprise to a global player. Morgan Solar's original business model centered around using complicated optics to concentrate light onto a tiny solar cell, which saved money on the cost of the cell and also using cheap everyday plastics saved money on the optics too. The goal was originally to get to what experts at the time thought was kind of the holy grail, which was around 30 cents per watt. But right around that time, the Chinese government initiated a strategic industrial policy to make solar a key manufacturing area for the country. So in addition to all their traditional manufacturing, supply chain skills that match perfectly with power electronics and solar, they threw in all the way to the government, uh, both from supplying capital at low costs and also supplying demand to allow that industry to scale. The result was that the cost of solar plummeted way faster than any reasonable forecaster was calling for, basically undercutting Morgan Solar's business model. And this was right at the same time that Mike was taking over as CEO. So he's just taking over as CEO when the Chinese have decided to own solar and basically put everyone else in the world out of business, taking all the technology from the Germans that basically invented it, scale it up, pump all this money into it. And then just as he's taking over, solar is crashing out. Oh my goodness. Well, he certainly had his work cut out <laughs> yeah. for him, didn't he? Yeah, unfortunately, that, that was the story. And here's Mike on that time and how he responded. And I thought I understood it. Like I really did. They had great technology, a great group of people. I, I, I was not expecting the solar marketplace to not drop in price. I mean, I knew all that stuff, right? And I still got in there and got surprised because solar dropped in, I mean, the first year or two I got there, like another 50%. And so that was kind of, yeah, that was like, shocking that I even someone who had been calling for solar decline and seen it decline that next drop that kind of mid I don't know 2015 2016 50% drop you know 60 cents to you know pretty well 30 cents that surprised me and it really took 
out Morgan's value proposition because they were all saying, we're going to create this alternative to traditional solar technology using better optics, better cells, better tracking of the sun to basically get to like a 30 cent price per watt. And then when the price of standard panels get down to 30 cents or getting there, I mean, no one's going to take the risk on this new technology. They're just going to keep riding that horse and that's the right thing to do. And I knew all that, right? I didn't come in there saying, we're going to do a better mouse trap and we're going to be completely vertically integrated. I mean, the mandate for me to come in when I came into the company was I'm the manufacturing guy who has lots of operation scales and run multi-billion dollar, 10,000, you know, that we were going to scale this horse up and, raise some money to raise more money to go on that big trail. And when I got in there, I said, that's, that's not going to work, guys. I know that's what you brought me in for, but this is not going to happen. It's not the right way to play this. And I don't think this reduction of cost from the traditional panel met is going to stop. So we had to stop all that. And, and then it was a matter of that we had this intricately created vertical stack of offerings from 100,000 lines of AI and machine learning to do optical design to we're using these um, cells that are used on satellites that are really expensive, but because we were re- had really clever optics that multiplied the light a thousand times in a thin cross-section, we were able to use a very small amount of these, these cells and place them down precisely with the optics to create this panel. And then we had it on this very accurate two-axis tracker that had all this SCADA system that you know gave feedback to the both to adjust its alignment to the sun but and to the power that was actually being created not what was just by a clock it was actually here's what's being created I'm adjusting to it and then a readout that's a third party you could look anywhere in the world um, and see how things were doing and adjust it so it was very 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 advanced and the shareholders they had were like Iberdrola and Enbridge and the Kuwaiti Investment Authority. All of them had these multi-gigawatt orders that were supposed to use this technology for. So it was all this very carefully crafted. And I had to blow that all up, turn it on the side and say, what is it that we actually have here? Because that vertical stack is not going to work. And then it went back to what are we really good at? Well, we have those 100,000 lines of code that's really, really good industry leading for designing optical systems and managing the sun. We have this SCADA system that can provide sensor feedback for how things are actually performing in a solar field or in a building or something like that and can adjust performance. We had this extremely well thought out understanding about how you make optical systems out of simple materials, reliable materials and and deliver them. And so I said, okay, well, where, where can we apply those that aren't going to get kind of kneecapped by this, this, like, no one cared about this technology. They just said, in fact, it was a disadvantage because they said, that sounds risky. I don't want to do that. I'm looking for easy bankable things. I, I would say to our, our team, bankers don't care about the solar technology that you're using. They, if you told them there's hamsters out in the desert trading, they, all they would care about is whether those hamsters would run long enough to cover their... PPA that they had, you know, so we had to really get out of love with our technology and, and kind of say, where else, where are we going to put it to people who care about us? And where are some places where we're going to be able to kind of move to where the puck is going to go rather than try to fight the, the direction of this inexorable cost takedown? That was the, the major strategic shift. And just because we got really kneecapped you know, by this 
50% drop of solar prices, which by the way, just that's what took out all the other non-Chinese players. It wasn't as if Morgan Solar was singled out for cruel and unusual punishment. There was 150 companies or so in North America alone who were trying to do something like Morgan Solar. And Morgan Solar was probably the only one that's still around out of that. So it wasn't uh, Morgan Solar problem on its own. It was like anyone trying to do something different than solar just got knocked out by that. So we had to adjust. Okay, that was a pretty monumental pivot, Craig. But fortunately, Morgan Solar has been able to thread that needle and come out the other side. Yeah, and Mike makes a really good point about understanding the value that you need to be bringing to customers. He nicely captures it when he says that Morgan Solar had to get out of love with their technology. I mean, this is such a classic problem with engineers producing engineering products that they're in love with their products. At the end of the day, solar panels aren't iPhones, are they? Nobody's buying them to have the latest and greatest gadget. Bankers and investors don't care about your technology. They only care about your ROI. Yeah, I, I, I'll have to tell you, Craig, that I definitely feel that. And as a individual with an engineering background. As an engineer, <laughs> that's right. Maybe I feel called out a little bit, but I, I couldn't agree more. And actually, a great example of working with partners that could care less about shiny new technologies is the most recent project that Morgan Solar has completed in Alberta. It's called Alberta Solar One. It's a 10 megawatt grid scale solar project in Alberta. It went online earlier this year. It's very impressive. Yeah, and, and uh, Morgan Solar partnered with Silfab, which is the panel manufacturer. Uh, Morgan Solar supplied them with a reconfigured optical back sheet that could optimize the performance of their traditional panels. And the project was commissioned, uh, it's now owned by Enbridge. So I asked Mike about his experience trying to introduce innovative technologies to reasonably conservative partners. Here's what he had to say on that. That's significant for a bunch of reasons, because that is probably the first manifestation of that entire shift is that how do you get a new technology into solar, get it manufactured at scale, get it installed in the middle of COVID in Alberta with a really conservative company. Enbridge is buttoned up. I mean, they are, you know, they're not looking... <laughs> to take a lot of risk and, and, and stuff. And they have a core business and, you know, and pipeline business and that wasn't doing too well. So they really weren't taking a lot, take a lot of risk. So you would think there's no way that you can introduce a new technology in the middle of a pandemic in there. It, and the only reason we did is because it is that approach that I, I mentioned is that the materials that we used to make the film that goes inside it were materials that were taken from applications like street signs that last 20, 30 years, 40, 50 years, and they reflect back at you when your headlines hit it. So, so if you can use that same sort of film that's in there, uh, street signs, then you can say, look, that's going to be reliable. The forming mechanism for them that allows sonic reflections back is just a simple embossing process. I mean, there's a lot, it's not simple, but it's an embossing process, well-established. So while we're not creating some different risk for material or the forming standpoint of this film that we're going to put in, the software allows us to design the pattern that you're going to emboss and how you place the film down cleverly. And then we, because of our optical knowledge, we knew where, how you could incorporate optics into you know, a stack, like a panel, a solar panel just has a solar material, electrical connections, and stuff to protect the electrical and the cells from the heat and the cold and the rain and the snow. 
that's why they can last 30 years. They're a laminated sandwich of, that keeps the, the sensitive parts separated from the environment. And we knew how to do that reliably. And so all we said to Silfab is, yes, I know you've never done this before, but we've got proven materials, proven processes. You're going to put it into your panel and you're going to make no other changes. So all you have to do is now take that completed panel and not reinvent the whole reliability stack of testing the materials or testing the, the sub-processes. You just have to see if this panel works. Tell us what spec you need it to work to. Well, we need it to work to the IEC spec. Okay. Since it's the first time too, you'll want to be more conservative. Test it to three times the IEC spec. And that's what they did. And it worked. And they were gave it not only a 25-year, but a 30-year warranty, which is what convinced Enbridge then who did the, had their engineer look at it and it wasn't as if you could prove that this new optical technology had been around for 30 years because it hadn't, but because we could prove that the materials and the processes uh, were, had been around with things in, in alternate industries that had lasted 30 years, and we were using existing manufacturing processes to build it, that that wasn't introducing any new risk, and that we had ten tested to a generally accepted standard for bankability and reliability, and you can see the data here, that's what convinced them to use it. But no one does that. No one jumps to utility scale, you know, with a conservative company and, in, in, you know, publicly with their first product. That doesn't happen. But it happened because of how we did it. That's really the message to me on that is that in the middle of COVID with risk aversion all around us, with companies worried about closing down and laying off people, that successive companies like Silfab took the risk, warranted it, Enbridge took the risk, bought the project from us, first time it ever been done. And it's not because it's the first time it's ever done, it's just that we use this approach. I call it T-innovation, bringing lateral innovation and, and supply chain, existing supply chains together. That's how we did it. That's the significance of that program for me. We're happy that it's installed, it's working great, but the real story is a proof of concept of how we do things and that it can be done. That's an incredibly compelling success story. So what did Mike have to say about clean tech industry as a whole? Mike's been a real advocate for the clean tech manufacturing sector in Canada. It's actually one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him and, and I think a good reason to have him launch this uh, episode series. You can really tell that when you hear him, that it's something that he's passionate about. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the 21st Century Imperative podcast. We've certainly enjoyed producing it. As you know, 21st Century is a not-for-profit venture, but we still have production costs. So to help cover these costs, we've launched a new online store with all proceeds going to cover production. And we have some great products for you. We have organic, fair trade t-shirts and hoodies, as well as non-toxic, BPA-free coffee containers, all with great graphics. So if you like the podcast, please think about helping us out by buying a t-shirt, hoodie, or mug for you and one for each of your friends. Head over to our website at tfcipodcast.com and click on the 21st Century Store button. Connor, what do you think Canada's role is in the grand scheme of things? On a global stage, we're certainly not the most influential player. We're a very small player. But I don't think we want to just play follow the leader and leave all of our policy decisions up to the U.S. and other countries. So what do you think? Yeah, that's right. And, and I actually hear that argument a lot that we should wait for US or China to take more of a proactive policy position on climate change before we do anything. 
the, the idea being that we're basically irrelevant in comparison, I think it completely misses the point. I agree. We may be a small fraction of global emissions, but we still have to go through this transition at some point, just like every other country. So if we aren't, in my mind, intentional about our approach and our, our policy objectives, I think it's pretty likely that we end up with the short end of the stick, losing our oil and gas sector and having no high-earning domestic industry to replace it. Yeah, something that will certainly happen if we're not proactive. I mean, we're losing it already. And interesting, like the oil and gas industry in both Alberta and Saskatchewan are in areas of Canada where there's a huge amount of solar potential. There's not a lot of cloudy days. So there's a lot of energy and they've also got a lot of potential for wind power. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity that they've got if they can only see it. Yeah. And, and I don't want to give them the impression that we aren't making this transition already. We're, we're in the middle of, uh, obviously, there's a huge amount of solar and wind that's already been deployed in the prairies and, and will continue to be over the next decade. But I think we need to accelerate that as much as possible. I think Mike has probably more than me, a much more informed position on this point. So here's his thoughts on how Canada needs to approach the energy transition as a whole. Canada sometimes, you know, we're not going to ever define the market. We're not big enough. So we got to make sure that we're, we're playing at a scale with a competitiveness uh, defined by other people. I talk about working at the clock speed of the industry, working at the competitive level of the industry, not the Canadian. So putting that all together, it brings together my passions for innovation, intellectual property, intellectual property protection, how you commercialize things, how you manufacture them, how you do this at global competitive scale. So this is why I'm on, you know, the next-gen manufacturing supercluster, the Building Energy Innovators Council, part of the Canadian Council of Innovators, and the Clean Tech Economic Strategy Table, is that all of these things are going to be important for us to do this properly in Canada. It's not just a matter of clean tech, it's clean tech plus manufacturing. If we're going to keep our edge, you better have intellectual property protection. If you want to have benefits accrue to Canadian taxpayers, Having the headquarters domiciled where the intellectual property is owned by Canadians, because you know most of the value in companies now is associated with intangible assets and things. So this is a more holistic thing. This is how Canada needs to be successful in the face of a disruption coming, driven by both an increasing international recognition that we have to do something about climate change, but also then a technological disruption of energy systems that's going to come along with that. So I, that's a longer answer, but to tell you this is a multifaceted thing, and it's why I do all the different things that I do. It's not just about the clean tech economic strategy table. So when I'm talking about what Canada needs to do, Canada needs to recognize that it is not being singled out for cruel and unusual punishment with people saying your nuclear industry is X, or hydroelectric was this, or oil sands is that. This is a dollars and cents question that now the generation costs of, certainly let's just talk electrical uh, system, undercut all of those models. Like they are just cheaper now to have new solar, new wind, new combinations of wind, solar, and, and storage now are just cheaper than the natural gas and the coal and the nuclear and even hydroelectric, frankly, when you look at the full cost of those things, they're just going to be better. Secondly, they're more resilient because they're not hub and spoked. They're all this distributed power thing. So Canada is not being the only country that's up against that. Those are just the forces. And we can choose to ignore them or not. We can choose to say, we can be like IBM and say, look, we have the best 
nuclear and we have this hydroelectric bounty and we have this oil sands bounty and look at us, we're the best and, and so is IBM and so is Nortel and so is Kodak. And, you know, just recognize where we are in the historical bend of this story is that technology doesn't give a rat's ass for that, for your incumbency or your previous strengths for the previous generation. They, they care about where it's at right now. So that's the first thing is that we have to look at this more holistically and, and get out of the debate in Canada, which is a made in Canada debate, which is our energy conversations is internal. Well, how do you maximize the nuclear industry? We want SMRs or how do you keep the oil sands working? Well, we got to put carbon capture to make them less or, you know, how do we use natural gas to make hydrogen? And it's, they, they come from places that say, how do we keep the inertia going for industries? Rather than, oh, something's changing, we're heavily invested in the current version, you need to diversify. And I've been at companies like IBM and, and you know, I made my business this, I would buy factories from companies that were going through massive disruption and realize, uh-oh, we're not in Kansas anymore, I got to change my supply chain model. To diversify, you don't keep doing what you're doing. You have to start disinvesting what you're doing and overinvest in the new. And Canada is so heavily invested in its current energy business that just stopping investing in it isn't going to be enough to shift the, the, it enough. You'd have to actually disinvest in it to shift that. But look, just look even now what's happening in, in our debates. Even the idea that you might slow down support for our current way of doing things is met with massive pushback. So the first thing we have to have is an honest conversation about what's really happening in the world and that we're not big enough to withstand it and whether or not we like it, it's coming for us. So if we could get our heads around that, the next thing is, okay, how do you play this so that we will have jobs for our people based on the new model? Because in my opinion, and we're seeing this play out, it is inevitable that the jobs are going to be lost in these old areas. We're seeing that in oil sands and all that. They, and, and, you know, they're, to their credit, they're getting more and more efficient as they have to do to get their costs down. And da, 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 da. But where is the other job? So we could be in the worst position here is if we stay with our incumbency, don't do anything about it, keep funding them, don't support these new industries. We're going to lose the old industry. At the same time, we have nothing new to fill in. And whether it's your oil sands or nuclear or hydroelectric, or automotive industry. All of those are at risk unless we have this shift. So that's the next thing is that we have to say, what are we going to make a conscious industrial policy like investment in that's the future oriented and where are we going to get the funding from that or where are we going to, we have to disinvest in some of the other stuff or rotate money out. And then the third thing is where are things that are going to be made in Canada inventions and IP so that even if we set up a factory in, in Canada, it's, oh, we're going to make batteries in Canada. If you're a branch plant of the U.S. or a branch plant of somewhere, I've seen that movie. I was the branch plant at IBM. You know, either that's not where it's controlled. That's not where the wealth resides. That's not where the decisions make that. You know, you're at the whim of, hey, costs are lower in Malaysia now. I'm mm -hmm. going to go there. And I was that guy making those decisions. I know the deal. I don't want to fall into that either. So we're going to have to have some IP and Canadian-owned IP of that. So those are the things that we're going to need to, to make decisions. It's bigger than just, hey, there's a clean tech thing. It's going to have to be a structural 
thought about Canadian areas where we could compete, Canadian-owned IP that allows us to do that, then scale businesses that can be globally competitive, and then a big reckoning about a rotation of funding and support from one, our incumbency to these new industries. I think Mike hits the nail right on the head. Even though it's a hugely difficult political nut to crack, Canada needs to figure out how to disinvest from incumbent and outdated fossil fuel energy sources and to figure out how to lean into new distributed electricity generation from wind, solar, and storage. I mean, it's just, we've just got to do it. Clearly, the economic logic is staring us in the face. As Mike says, it's just cheaper now to have new solar, new wind, new combinations of wind, solar, and storage now that they are cheaper than natural gas, coal, and nuclear. And Craig, there's one more clip that I wanted to bring up before we wrap up this episode. Uh, right at the end of our conversation, I asked Mike about the new kids on the clean tech block, which I think everybody's talking about right now, uh, carbon capture, sequestration, and hydrogen. So it's a pretty short clip, but I think it's worth hearing. Uh, here's Mike on those topics. That's my concern about what I see with, even in Canada, but in many places, when you talk about hydrogen, when you talk about small modular reactors, carbon capture and all that, maybe we need all of those for corner cases and stuff like that, but they're not ready now. They're not going to be ready for a long time. And they're being used by many of the usual suspects as let us keep doing the stuff that we're doing now and we'll just get cleaner. And I, I don't think we can afford that time. But more importantly, it's never a model, never, never a model that I've seen in any disruptive event that the incumbents are the ones who drive this disruption. Who are advocating for the technology. The turkeys don't say, right. set the, the menu for you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, <laughs> right? And, and so it's, it's not going to happen at the pace that we need it to. And it's going to cost us a lot by gating the agenda, the timeframe, the investment choices based on making what we have slightly better rather than dealing with the reality of this disruption, the urgency for it with technologies that we have and solar, wind, battery storage, EVs, power electronics, smart grid, it's there now. You know, I think it's a really interesting point that he makes. Basically, we should always be skeptical when it's the incumbents who are the ones in the pilot seat of disruptive change. Well, clearly the existing energy industry in Canada has its fair share of turkeys wanting to set the menu. Well, Connor, this has been a great episode to kick off our clean tech podcast. Lots of interesting topics to think about. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we close out for today? Yes. First of all, I want to thank Mike for taking the time to share his experiences with us and with me. Uh, it was a really great conversation, and there was a lot of great content that unfortunately didn't make it into the episode. Secondly, I want to remind listeners that we're hoping to make this a reoccurring segment, focusing on, on clean tech, obviously. So if anyone out there has thoughts on topics or guests that they want to hear about, please drop us a line either through the 21st Century Imperative podcast website or through our Facebook page. If you want to join the Facebook page, now that we're talking about it, please do. We're hoping to start being more active on the social media platform, um, so stay tuned for that. And finally, we're still experimenting with the format of these clean tech episodes. So if you have any feedback on what type of format that you want to hear, longer, shorter, uh, more detailed on certain topics, 
uh, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, Connor. It was great talking with you. And Mike's story was very compelling. I'm looking forward to hearing your next episode. Take care for now. Thanks, Red. Bye. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash TFCI podcast. This podcast is ad free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So if you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.